Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can also click subscribe and listen to the podcast on Google, Apple, and uh, Spotify. Uh, and uh, you can also check us out at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. Uh, earlier this month, finished covering the Atlanta Film Festival. And uh, this... You know, the, this summer is going to be pretty interesting. Um, I'll, I hope to have some uh, pretty interesting comment, uh, commentary and uh, special treats for people who go to uh, patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. And uh, I am uh, streaming, live streaming on Twitch at twitch.tv backslash Scuttle Lemur. Uh, with me going back to work recently, the uh, schedule is... Going to be a bit up in the air, but I will always try to uh, list it on Twitch or and promote on social media if uh, I have an episode coming up. So that's twitch.tv backslash scuttlelemur for my live stream. Uh, one of the things that we have uh, started to do on the Sonic Cinema podcast over the uh, past few years is we've kind of done deep dives on directors, and we usually just do... Uh, three movies that are kind of representative of the director's talents and his their versatility. And uh, today we're going to be doing that with the one and only Orson Welles. Joining me is uh, D.W. Lundberg. He is one of the hosts of Nostalgia Cast, which I guested on recently to uh, discuss Hal Needham's Rad, which... Um, is several steps down, I think, from the movies we're about to talk about tonight. But uh, DW, thank you very much for joining me. <laughs> thank you for having me on. Uh, you said a couple steps. I think uh, Rad is more like a clip jump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, I, I think that's, that's probably the most accurate way of putting it. Um, before, we, before we get going on uh, Orson Welles, uh, DW, if you would... Uh, Talk a little bit about what you try to do with Nostalgia Cast and kind of how you how you uh, got started in doing podcasting. Well, like everybody else, just kind of sitting around, just working, thinking about what uh, what my life has come to <laughs> and uh, what what it could amount to, and then just started listening to podcasts. I don't even know how I got started getting addicted to them. I just know I started listening to to them. There's a podcast, especially called uh, Best Forgotten Movies, that I I can't even remember how I found. These guys, Gareth and Andy, just they they did a an opening episode where they talked about a bug's life versus ants, and then they kind of <laughs> compared them, and they just went on from there and did like movies like True Lies and uh, X Men Origins Wolverine or Star Trek Five, and they were just they got my brain going, and so I thought, you know, if I if I could do a podcast, what what would I do? And I just thought, you know, being a child of the '80s, you know, especially us talking about uh, about Rad, that was a that was a good one to pick for when we had you on, um, but you know. Movies that you watch as a kid, do they stand up as adults? Like, obviously, we watch them and we love them as kids, but when we watch them as adults again, do they have the same kind of impact? Mm -hmm. Or or do we notice certain things or do we do we forget that certain things are there? So it's all about, I'm, I kind of think, you know, my friend and, and I, childhood friends, Johnny, um, and he was the one that I thought of because we that's how we met. We talked about movies and bonded over that, but... It, we both had made the decision that nostalgia, especially for 
I think the one that really kicked it off was the uh, the, the Ghostbusters that came out in 2016. Mm-hmm. The, the female Kristen Wiig and uh, um, Leslie Jones and uh, Melissa McCarthy, uh, Kate McKinnon. That you know the 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 bite back on that Ghostbusters. You know it was just unfair, and people were threatening Leslie Jones on online and calling her names, and yeah. it was just wow, you guys are really, really attached to Ghostbusters. And, you know, I get it. You know, it's Ghostbusters is a formative movie for a lot of people because, you know, that you feel like you're nerdy and you feel like you don't amount to anything. And the, the characters in that are nerds and they mm-hmm. amount to their heroes. And so that's something to aspire to. That's very Luke Skywalker. It's very Superman. It's, it's all those things. But I just think having that that deep of a connection, that much nostalgia for something where you're just angry that anybody would dare touch it or do a different spin on it. I I, I think that's dangerous. And it's just yeah. a question of, you know, can we watch these movies and still appreciate them, but see them in a different lens? And so that's, you know, we, so we try to look at it from that way, but then Johnny and I, we, we never fight. So mm-hmm. we always want to be like, you know, we want to be just very fair. We want to have, you know, deep discussions about what works and, and just be honest and, and not, because again, the thing on online, especially Twitter, is when, you know, Brian, you know this too, is when, when you go online and you say, I like this movie, or even like, I don't like this movie. Let me switch that. Like, if you come out and say, I don't like this movie, or even worse, for some reason, I like this movie, mm-hmm. people get offended by yeah. that. It's like, like, it's a personal attack. And it, that's not what we're trying to do. It's, mm-hmm. we want to start conversations and, and figure out you know, obviously we're not going to agree on everything, but we want to know how we can meet in the middle and how you work as a movie fan and how I work as a movie fan. And mm-hmm. I just think if, if everybody agreed on everything all the time, it'd be such a boring, boring world. And so, you know, we try to keep it fun. We try to keep it light, but we also try to give it like, you know, we don't want to be like, oh, that was cool or this is dumb or that kind of thing. We, we want to deep dive into it. Yeah. And I, I think that was one of the things that I really enjoyed about being on the show and Talking about a movie like Rad, which I have, I have tremendous affection for because I grew up with it. But at the same time, I'm much older, much more knowledgeable about films. I can definitely see its limitations now. I mean, some movies age considerably well. Rad is a movie that doesn't. And we're going to be talking about <laughs> three films here tonight that really age in a way they age like fine wine, and they. There's so much to discuss with them, and uh, that was, yeah, I mean, that's that's one thing. And when you talk about, like, having conversations where you don't necessarily agree, but they're respectful conversations, it's like, those are some of my favorite conversations to have with people yeah. about movies. And, but one of the things that I like, especially on the podcast, I mean, it's a very loose like I have a very loose structure to this. It's like there are some episodes I will, certain episodes I will do year in year out, whether it's covering film festivals, talking about my ten best lists, doing Dragon Con stuff like that. But for the most part, I mean, I'm kind of freewheeling as far as the subject matter, and uh, you know, it's it's great to the the thing, especially with me having guests on. It's not that. I know how I feel about these movies, and I could just, you know, if I wanted to just do a podcast episode talking about me talking about these movies, I could do it. I want to hear what other people have to say about these movies. I want to hear about their experiences watching these movies, and that's that's one of the things that I, I think is 
it is hard to get to, I mean, you know as well as I do, it's hard to get to the nuance of a discussion on film on Twitter. Like, you <clears> can only do so much in 280 characters. Yeah, and that's that's absolutely it. And then, I mean, if, if you have that limited, like, uh, you know, character usage, you really can't dive deep as much as you need to. I mean, you can do a thread, but I, I find that when I do threads, people usually only read the first part and then they kind of don't read the rest. Um, but, you know, especially talking about Rad, I think the joke between you and I was that we don't think there's ever been a more deep dive conversation about Rad yeah. in the history of ever. And But it was fun. I mean, Rad is not, you know, we keep, we've mentioned a few times, it's not a good movie, but mm-hmm. it's, it's still, as you know, as far as quality or especially compared to Orson Welles or anything like that, but it's fun. I mean, it's, it hits a, it strikes a particular nerve and there's nothing wrong with that. This, you know, there's no, there's nothing wrong with silliness. There's nothing wrong with liking something that's, you know, not up to par. We can like all sorts of different things. Yeah. And that's the conversation that we want to have. Again, it's about conversations. It's not about arguments. It's not about, you know, alienating people. When I say I like a movie or I don't like a movie, I'm not doing that to say you're an idiot if you think different. Right. But that's the attitude that a lot of people have, and that's that's really what we we try to push back against. And that's something that you and I, from the very beginning, we've been able to have good conversations. Yeah, I think. Yeah, and I mean, Rad Rad was an excellent. I think Rad was such a. I mean, you know, not to pat myself on the back, it really was a great choice for yeah. what you guys talk about, which is the idea of how much does nostalgia, you know, cloud our judgment on films. Can we separate it from our critical feelings of the movie from the nostalgia? And how does that impact how we sort of look at it now? Like I can I can still watch Rad and think it's an entertaining movie. I, I will fully acknowledge it's not a good movie. Like they're <laughs> they're like we talked about in that episode. And if you haven't given if you haven't listened to uh nostalgic ass, I highly recommend it. It's really an entertaining entertaining one he has great guests and i mean he and he and john even when it's just he and johnny they they do really uh great discussions on movies and uh yeah i mean you're you're one my like you were talking about you and i online having discussions on twitter it's like it's that's one of the things that is so fun about interacting with you is the fact that it's like you're you're extremely knowledgeable about it but you're also respectful and that's the most important thing, I think. And uh, we'll we'll get we'll actually just go ahead and sort of dive into it. So one of the reasons, uh, it, it's funny that we are doing Orson Welles here, and which is as far away from you know nostalgia, really. Like this, this is a movie that yeah, you and I probably watched when we were younger, but we don't necessarily have the same type of feelings that we do towards it compared to a movie that came out like at the time when we were younger, like this, these predate us. So it's like, these are movies that we came to like, and any sense of nostalgia is just removed and they are basically iconic. And I mean, Wells is, Wells is justifiably considered one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Uh, it's and it's it's funny that he, it's funny that that's the case in a way because of the fact that he really only had one movie where his unfettered vision 
was able to be fully realized, and that was his first movie. Um, yeah. What is it about Orson Welles for you that um, makes him such a fascinating filmmaker? Well, you know, uh, again, thank you for the kind words about the, the podcast and about, you know, me being on, on, and that's what we strive for. So I'm glad that you're able to pick up on that. And when I'm on Twitter, that I do want to be respectful. I do want to have conversations. But, you know, even... You know, when you talk about Orson Welles even on Twitter, there's a big blowback for what a blowhard he was and what a, <laughs> what a show, showman and, you know, just just how in your face he was as an entertainer. And in a way, you know, I, I get it, you know what I mean? But also, that's that's something that makes him really charming to me and, and very charismatic. And, you know, the, the everybody thinks of, even if you don't know it, the reveal of uh, Harry Lyman, the third man, you know, that, that face is indelible. And that's, it's an iconic mm-hmm. face. And he just has, you know, he has a very, he, he is a blowhard. You can just tell that just from listening to him or just watching him. And I just think, you know, kind of going into my history about Citizen Kane and Orson Welles is during the, during the nineties, that's when I really started my movie education. I've always liked movies because my mom, I mentioned this on our podcast all the time. My mom, I was a single kid and my, my mom is just her raising me. She would just leave me with movies. And so I was addicted to them. So I knew I liked movies, but I decided but I wanted to know more about where they come from. I'm, I'm the type that if I watch a movie, I don't think of, like, especially today, I have a hard time watching movies today because nothing is new. Yeah. Like, every, like every now and then you get a handful of something that, that breaks the rules. But, like, everything that's out is just a, like a repeat or a repurposing of something that's come before. And so I started picking up on that and wanted to know, okay, I need to know film history. I, I want to really go into it. And I want to like maybe be a, a screenwriter or a film critic. That's, that's kind of the fun thing. And so when I started watching movies in the nineties, you know, you have this list that, that teachers give you or that, um, you know, have, you know, the, the pantheon of movies that you're supposed to watch in order to, for your, to consider yourself like a movie goer or a mm-hmm. cinephile. And Citizen Kane was at the top of that. So naturally when you know I was a teen in the nineties, you kind of, push back and say, like, well, I'm not going to watch, I'm the greatest movie of all time, but, you know, I'm going to watch other things. Yeah. And so, you know, I started watching John Ford. I started watching Casablanca. I started watching um, uh, Capra and, you know, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. It's a Wonderful Life. All the classics and all the ones that, you know, Casablanca is a movie that's hard to dislike. I mean, it's very, mm-hmm. like, it's solid character-wise, it's solid filmmaking-wise, it's solid, you know, movie quality-wise. But then you start to notice that every movie kind of has the same format because I think that was just the motion picture code or whatever they mm-hmm. had. Like it would start with, you know, you'd see an RKO picture, a Columbia picture, all that. And then they'd have like the title card, Ingrid Bergman and Humphrey Bogart in. And then they'd, they'd show the cast and then they'd, they'd go into it. And at the end, they would just have the... So every movie, the format of it was very static and it was all the same, which that's not a problem for me. It's just the way that it was. But then like putting Citizen Kane at the bottom of the watch list... When I finally got around to watching it, it was all of a sudden, after you're kind of lulled into that sense of security watching movies, and again, I don't mean that as a negative, because mm. uh, there's so many classics, and you can see, like, behind me, like, all these all these movies are so great. Um, but when Citizen Kane came along, from the first frames, it was like being in the desert after, like, two weeks of, or <laughs> actually two weeks, after two days of trying to survive, and all of a sudden, you get a big gulp of water. Or you're just so hot, you know, and all of a sudden you get water splashing in your face and you're alive again. That's what Citizen Kane was like. Because Orson Welles, from the very beginning, was a guy that was like, 
okay, like he started writing plays like when, by the time he was 10, you know, he, he was on Broadway by the time he was 19. He was mm-hmm. part of the, the Mercury Theater, you know, in his early 20s. And then he did, in 1936, he did something called Voodoo Macbeth, which is just Macbeth, but with an all-black cast, which was against the rules. You mm-hmm. couldn't do that. But it was such, you know, he was such a showman. And he was like, you know what? If I can't, I'm, I'm going to do it. Like, you tell me I can't, I will do it. And then it was he became a big hit with that. And then obviously War of the Worlds, when he started taking charge of the Mercury Theater, he was like, you know, I listened to all these productions. I can do it better. I can, mm-hmm. I can make this, I can lift this into the stratosphere. And again, War of the Worlds, very, very famous because people thought it was real if they tuned in late. And then, you know, he had to apologize because it, it was such a, you know, it raised such a, a ruckus, or, or, you know, around town. And so by the time he got carte blanche to make Citizen Kane, again, he approached it the same way. He watched John Ford movies. I think he watched Stagecoats like 40 times. And so he watched it and he was like, you know, and he learned how to do it. But then he was like, how can I do this better? Yeah. And so Citizen Kane... And it's weird to think of all the trouble he got into just for breaking little rules, like showing ceilings or putting the credits at the end. Or, you know, when I was trying, when I try to get my wife, she still hasn't watched Citizen Kane. I don't, I don't know if I want to subject her to that. But when I try to explain to her, like, yeah, they showed ceilings. Like, you didn't do it because there are microphones mm-hmm. used on the stage and people didn't like that. And people thought that. And she's like, ceilings? Like, what's the big deal? <laughs> you know? And it's, it's weird thinking back in the 40s that that was such a deal breaker for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, even George Lucas had to fight against the DGA to put his the credits at the end of Star Wars. And so it, it was all about breaking rules. And that's, I think, where he gets his um, reputation as a blowhard from. But I just love that about him. Like, they're, you know, watching 80s movies or watching a lot of older movies, it's, it's you know, you check your watch a lot of the time. Like, mm-hmm. how, when, how much left do I have? I never feel that way with an Orson Welles movie because his movies are alive and if, you know, you show me a clip from Lady from Shanghai, like any shot in there is so modern and it's mm-hmm. so now and it's so demanding of your attention that it's like, wow, like, who is this? Like, just from one frame of film, you know what I'm talking about? And so, mm-hmm. I don't know, I like the blowhardedness of Orson yeah. Welles. He, you know, if he just made Citizen Kane, mm-hmm. that would be a legacy mm-hmm. to be proud of. And But he kept trying and that's the thing, too, is he's one of the great directors. But if you watch, especially Othello, which anybody else had directed that movie with that, well, the sound quality or whatever and everything like that, they would have been thrown to the wolves or mm-hmm. kicked to the curb. But since it's Orson Welles and we know the whole history of him fighting against the system just because he made a movie that broke rules or attacked William Randolph Hearst, um, Mogul, that, that kind of stuff, that he paid for it the rest of his life, rest yeah. of his career. The fact that he kept trying and the fact that even Othello, which we'll talk about, is amateurish in a lot of ways because he couldn't afford or couldn't like he, you know, he couldn't afford to make it the high quality like you talked about a Citizen Kane. Even the worst Orson Welles is better than most average directors these yeah. days. Yeah. So I don't know. I just love him. I just I, I <laughs> like that blowhardness and that he tries and that he pushes. That's something that, that a lot of people don't do. Mm hmm. And I think that I think that blowhard quality probably comes a lot from the fact that he was a child prodigy, and mm. he just had all of this. He had all of this gusto, and like you said, it's like he always was pushing the boundaries. He's always he he's always thinking about how to make do something better, and how to challenge conventional narrative. And that's one of the things that's 
just so remarkable that, and we'll we'll talk about it a little bit more with the uh, other two films that we're talking about. I mean, the obvious one we're going to start out with is, of course, Citizen Kane, and because it's the most famous one, and it's the one everybody knows. But you know, the the two movies that you and I chose, like we basically, I chose one movie, you chose another, you chose Othello, and I chose The Trial. The thing that it's, I can see completely why Wells probably reckon, really kind of saw, at some times saw Citizen Kane as sort of an albatross around his neck. Because yeah. if you're so famous for your first time out, people are not really going to appreciate when you continue to push the boundaries. And that's one of the things that's so striking. You mentioned Lady from Lady of Shanghai, which I love. It's one of my favorite film noirs. It's, it's a film that I absolutely adore of his. And, you know, you, you talk about Othello, you talk about The Trial, you talk about Chimes at Midnight, and F for Fake, which I absolutely adore, and I seriously consider that being my my personal choice of uh, Wells. And then you look at Touch of Evil, which I think, as much as innovative as Citizen Kane is, I think Touch of Evil was just as innovative in the <clears> way it uses the soundtrack, in the way it uses the camera. It's just absolutely remarkable what he did as he went on throughout his career. Yeah, that's... And I, I think that was the pushback is just him trying to be better. That, that makes people kind of what, who is this guy? You know, like wh who are you to tell me how to do, I've been doing this for decades and you're going to come in, you're going to make this movie and you're going to show all of us up. And I completely understand yeah. where that, where that negativity, uh, you know, comes from, but he, I, I don't know. I'll come, I'll probably come back to it again and again. I think you need that. There's a difference we, I talked a little bit about Michael Curtiz on Twitter a while back, who's not like a visual, he's not an auteur, I would say, mm -hmm. but Curtiz is a master director because he knows how to get good performances out of people. He knows how to frame a shot. He knows how to tell a story. It's all very, you know, stuff we take for granted. It's all simply done, but well done. And it's, it's harder to do than you think. But then you have Orson Welles, or then you have, you know, especially today you have Fincher or Tarantino or your Nolan or all these show off people that, that come in and think, I'm going to do this better. Mm -hmm. And there's there's some pushback against that. It's kind of like, uh, what does Jeff Fox really say? It's the Jeff Gordon syndrome, <laughs> you know, where this, this person comes in and shows up, this young and comes in and shows up all these professionals. And it's like, who is this kid? Like, <laughs> you can't, you know what I mean? And so, I don't know, it, it's heartbreaking thinking that, when people think of Orson Welles, they think of him and, and Transformers, the movie, which I was just talking to somebody the other day about, yeah, this is his best performance. And I was like, he, he couldn't even perform his lines. They had to come in and, and like amp up his voice with electronics. Yeah. Like that's not even mostly him. <laughs> and like you, obviously, you, I don't want to say obviously, but it's like, you can't look at it from that. No, <laughs> if, no. If you think that's his crowning achievement, then it's like, I don't know. I don't know how you're, <laughs> We, we talk about trying to be respectful, but there are certain things where it's like, I don't get it. I yeah. don't get how you get yeah. that point. No, that's, that's absolutely true. And there are just certain times where you just kind of have to roll your eyes sometimes. And <laughs> you're, you're, it's, it's hard, to, like you said, it's hard to be respectful. Um, yeah. But Wells is somebody who is very easy to be respectful to as, as a creative artist. And uh, 
he he definitely i mean war of the worlds uh if you've never listened to uh wells's war of the worlds it's highly recommended i listened to it Ooh, yeah. the first time when uh spielberg's movie came out and mm. it's just absolutely it's a riveting it it's a riveting listen and it yeah. really is and you can see you can tell why the panic happened because of the fact that he did such a good job of dramatizing that and making it feel real and yeah believable right yeah like it was actually happening like there's a very like you're in the moment like when it opens up and it starts off you can hear like the band the old band playing and then they keep cutting in and and the, the funniest thing about war of the worlds though is like toward the end what the last 45 minutes is just orson welles just orating just yeah. just talking to himself just what and that always cracks me up because it's like yeah this guy loves the sound of his own voice which mm. might be why i kind of uh, <laughs> like him because maybe i like the sound of my own voice but and then afterwards, him apologizing in that that famous like uh, uh, press conference, like you can tell he's really striving to apologize and be sincere, even yeah. though part of him's like you can tell is like, yeah, I really did a good job here, and I think that's <laughs> that's part of the pushback is he he knows that he's good, mm. and I think that's it's the humility that <laughs> that the lack of humility that really sticks in people's craw, I think. I mean, to be fair, Wells has probably one of the greatest voices in movie mm. history. So, um, you know, I, I can completely, you know, it's like I, I it's it's hard not to want to listen to his voice. It's like I would love to just hear him. You know, I, I, I wish, you know, he had been around at the time of like audio commentaries and stuff like that. I would have been mm. fascinated to see if hear him like do one on Citizen Kane or Touch of Evil or just really anything. But uh, <clears throat> so the first film we're going to uh, go with is uh, Citizen Kane came out in 1941. Uh, you mentioned David Fincher earlier. Uh, last year, David Fincher, working from a script from his father, made Mank, which is about Herman Mankiewicz, who is mm-hmm. the co-screenwriter on uh, Citizen Kane. And he based Citizen Kane on... William Randolph Hearst and one of the the ultimate MacGuffin, I think, in movie history, Rosebud, is a uh, name of uh, Marion, a private area of Marion Davies, <laughs> who was um, William Randolph Hearst's uh, lover, mistress, yeah, mistress, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's it's funny because of the fact that uh, I I finally am starting to get caught up with uh, the latest season of You Must Remember This, uh, yeah. the podcast, and they're talking about and she's talking about or uh, Herman uh, William Randolph Hearst and uh, Marion Davies in regards to uh, this this year's subject. It's really fascinating. If you've never listened to that podcast, that's an essential one to listen to if you love movie history is absolutely wonderful that's a katrina longworth right yes the smooth sultry voice of katrina longworth (laughs) yeah she's very very knowledgeable and very that's a fun listen that podcast yeah it's 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 really uh yeah it's really an entertaining one um i i think that the thing that always kind of surprises me about citizen kane and i will i'll try not to repeat myself because of the fact that we're talking about citizen 
came from perspective of Wells's career as opposed to just movies in general. Because if you listen to the podcast, you know that I just talked to about Citizen Kane a couple of episodes ago with regards to sort of established classics, movies that have a reputation of greatness and whether they hold up. And this one certainly does. And uh, I, I think it's, it's fascinating to imagine. It's not, it's not surprising if you, if you watch the documentary, The Bow Over Citizen Kane, uh, that is a terrific uh, primer on the, the collision of William Randolph Hearst and Orson Welles and how neither one of them really uh, quote-unquote won I guess that battle, I mean, you could say Wells won because of the fact that more people were familiar with Citizen Kane now than they are with William Randolph Hearst. But um, at the same time, I mean, I it's the fact that he decided to take on such a subject his first time out, and it was based on, and it's funny that this is the only movie that we're talking about that is a complete original from him. And yeah. uh, the other the other ones that we're talking about are adaptations, and this this is just such a towering piece of storytelling, and it's it's one of those seminal films in the ways that he challenged storytelling conventions at the time and Cinemax storytelling conventions, and but that's not part. And but the thing is, the thing that. I'm always left with whenever I watch this is just how absolutely entertaining it is as well. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned Mank. Um, you've seen it, right? Yeah. Obviously you have. I, I have yet to watch it just because, you know, like I said, I, I have a hard time sitting down and watching newer movies. And when I heard what the premise was, it's, it's basically about how Mank was the fight to make the movie and how like he tried to make a name for himself. And Orson Welles is, is how was Orson Welles presented in the movie? You don't really see Orson Welles a lot. You mainly hear him over the phone. Uh, it's it's okay. mainly it's mainly Mank. Uh, it's mainly Mankiewicz uh, holed up in a ho- hotel room after okay. a uh, after a pretty uh, bad bender, and uh, it's it's basically him working through the screenplay. But you do kind of see. You you do kind of get elements of the tension between him and he and Wells in terms of like authorship and what the movie should be about, how the movie should be. But you also get flashbacks of um, Mankiewicz with uh, Hearst and Marion Davies as well. So yeah, well, first of all, it's interesting that even though Orson Welles is the one that his he got screwed over, it was Mankiewicz that was friends with Hearst. Like, and, and he's the one that had the idea for the screenplay. And, you know, yeah. all, all the controversial stuff comes from him. And then Wells kind of added the cinematic stuff. You know, talking about Mank, I feel bad that I haven't been seen it. But again, I, that doesn't really interest me as far as the screenplay goes. Because to me, it does the screenplay, other than some really good dialogue, and especially um, what Everett Sloan's dialogue about the girl with the parasol, which is a great, mm-hmm. great monologue. And it really ties in with the idea of memory to the movie, which, again, it's not just there for the sake of being there. Like everything else, it serves a purpose, narrative-wise. But to me, Citizen Kane is not really about the writing as much as the visual storytelling. And again, that, 
there, you know, there's a difference between showing Humphrey Bogart kind of agonizing over, you know, Bergman and, you know, his memories and sitting at a table with, the, you know, the glass of bourbon or whatever and just rubbing his face. But then yeah. there's a shot in Citizen Kane, which, you know, it's it's him signing away his legacy. And you have like the everybody talks about this shot, but it has like the, the windows in the background and mm-hmm. it just looks normal. But then when he he signs away his company. Wells walks towards the window and all of a sudden you realize that these windows are gigantic and they're not on the floor. They're like six feet up from the floor. And so when they're, they're towering over him. And so what that tells you is he's now dwarfed in the image. It's telling you, you, you didn't even have to know what he was signing away. You get from the visuals that he's being diminished, that something is being taken away from him. He's no longer important no longer large in stature and it's that and that's just one shot like i can every single shot in this movie well maybe not every shot but almost every shot every other shot let's say tells a story and that's mm-hmm. something it, visually instead of just letting the actors do it and so even acting wise which again everybody's good in the movie but it's the direction and it's the way things are framed and it's the story that's being told within every shot that is what attracts me to the movie more than the writing. So again, I apologize that I haven't watched Mank yet, but that's, I'll get to it. But that kind yeah. of history is the least interesting thing for me because that's mm-hmm. not why I really love the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's the way that Wells constructs this movie is absolutely amazing because of the fact that, uh, you basically find out the entire story through newsreel first. It's very mm. early on. It's like five, five to ten minutes of uh, quote unquote newsreel that was created for the sake of giving us exposition, essentially, of what uh, Kane's life was. And then the rest of the movie is about filling in details of that yeah. structure, and it's absolutely brilliant because. You know, oh yeah, you're you're telling us stuff that we already know, but you're also expanding on it. And it's one of the great examples of exposition that I, I think any movie has ever done. And you know, the the thing that is so remarkable about Citizen Kane, apart from I mean, there's a lot of great visual things, there's a lot of great revolutionary cinematic things. It's just a fun movie to watch. Like, it really just sucks you in from frame one, and you can't help but watch it. Yeah, that's the, it, it's the mystery of it. It's just the way that they're trying to uncover the past. And uh, I don't know, the, I really like, like you said, the newsreel thing, how it basically lays out the entire movie for you and then lets you see everything in detail. Something that, that comes to mind with that is I remember watching Titanic and how James Cameron wrote it in the beginning about how they explain to Rose what's going to happen to the yeah. ship. You know, they talk about how it's going to break because, you know, the balance is off. And and the way that they describe it, when it happens later in the movie, you're first of all, you're, you're waiting for it to happen. Mm-hmm. And second of all, when it happens, you're not confused. There's no, at no point you're like, wait, why is, why is it breaking in half? Like, because you've been told what's happening yeah. and it's just about filling in, it's filling in the details. That's the stuff that really matters. And you're right. It's, I, I feel bad that I, that I pushed against watching it for so long, but, it, but I'm also not because it primed me watching the dozens or countless movies before that. It primed me for what a game changer Citizen Kane was and when they talk about it being homework, it's not. It's really entertaining. It's really fast-paced. Orson Welles is really fun to watch. Like I said, mm-hmm. he's really charismatic. 
there's so much going on and it's just the way that it's framed and the way that it's shot and everything. It's just relentlessly entertaining. It's so fun to watch. And I think that's what a lot of people don't, don't realize and, about movie. Yeah. And I mean, like you said, like every image tells a story in it. Every image is part of the larger story and each each image just has its own story as well. I mean, even even shots like going down to uh, the bar where uh, where this God, how can I? Uh, I can edit this. His wife, his mistress. Who was it? His, his mistress. Uh, this the singer. How Susan. Susan. Susan Alexander. That's right. Yeah. I couldn't okay. remember her first name. I remember her second name but i mean that that shot and i mean the technical appreciation of that shot like can be inferred by oh hey it's going through the sign and then going down through the window and stuff like that but you go the way that he loops back to that scene after initially uh thompson gets uh rebuffed by her and then you know we we basically come to uh it's not her turn to tell her story yet and that's one of the things that's interesting about that is that every the the order of the interviews is very critical because of the fact mm. that it's like it's following the basic structure that the newsreel laid out in the story yeah, and that's a funny thing you mentioned that too, because even though that's that's a good point, how the movie's just not ready for her yet. It's not ready to to dive into that part. And then I think, what is it like? Just maybe she drinks a little more. <laughs> She's a little <laughs> more open to talking about. But you know, even even then, even though there's a structure to it, I'm surprised. I've again, I some movies are ingrained in my brain, and so I don't necessarily need to watch them over and over again. I don't want to get tired of them. Mm -hmm. But ever, I've seen Citizen Kane maybe six, seven times. Yeah. Just because I don't want to. But every time I watch it, I'm surprised because that nonlinear structure, which again was something that that people fought against and got him in trouble, because things are out of order, I forget what happens next. There's an, mm -hmm. uh, the, even the narrative is alive, like because I don't, it's not predictable. Like, oh, this part's here. The part with the window comes at 27 minutes in. I'm like, I thought this was much later, but it's now? Okay. Yeah. But again, every little scene, Again, I'm reminded of the one where he's, uh, what, what's his wife's name? Uh, Emily. When he's, yeah. it's the table scene where they're at dinner and it starts off with a shot of them, <laughs> a two shot of them at the table. And then it keeps going and they get older and older and they, their politics get more, they, they, you can tell they're separating, they're more dour with each other. Mm -hmm. And then by the end, the camera pulls and it keeps doing these back and forth shots, these yeah. two. But at the end, the camera backs up and now you see them like at opposite ends of a long table. Mm -hmm. And again, that just tells a story, right? I'm amazed every time I watch it. I'm, there's just a, I have a big grin on my face every time I'm watching the scenes because the audacity of it and also how alive the storytelling is. Yeah, and I mean, you, you mentioned him watching uh, John Ford's uh, Stagecoach countless times. I mean, it's obvious that Ford was an inspiration to him because he used... Greg Toland, who had shot a couple of films mm. for uh, Ford, as well as helped develop the deep focus that this movie uh, makes so famous. And, uh, you know, they, he, he shared, I mean, in another revolutionary thing, and one that I'm not sure has really ever happened since, he, he shares the, 
director's card with Tolan. Yeah. Because of the yeah. fact that he couldn't have accomplished what he accomplished without him. And uh it's the and I love um Bernard Herman's music in this. And even at the start, you really get a sense of Herman, what we're going to see here from Herman in the future, especially with Hitchcock. Yeah, there's a foreboding to that yeah. to that music at the start. Yeah, and it's and also, also burlesque to like he's yeah. all over the place. Like everything, mm-hmm. it's it's even the score is alive. I love it. I yeah. love the music. Yeah, and I mean we're we're going to talk about you know, and we're we're going to talk about Othello, and and the thing that I love about. Wells and I, I think this did come from his, uh, his his time on radio is his use of sound and the use of sound effects and also the use of music because yeah. you hear it in Citizen Kane with Herman's score like you said it's kind of all over the place there's a lot of different uh, tone changes in the type of score that we get and uh, includes opera at times and yeah. then uh, we'll we'll talk about Othello later, but then you have Touch of Evil, what Henry Mancini does in that movie, and I love, and that's probably my favorite, one of my favorite score soundtracks I've of all time, and it's because of the fact that there's a the way Mancini uses music that's supposed to come out of an on-screen source like a radio mm-hmm. or ain't thing like that versus something that's going to be coming out of a player piano or something that's just traditional score and that that's as much Wells's decisions as it is Mancini's and um you know you you listen to some of the choices that uh Wells makes over and over and you hear you see the choices that Wells makes over and over in each film and it's just absolutely striking like he he understands even before make it's understandable it's almost i don't want to say it's obvious how great citizen kane was going to turn out to be but when you consider his background in theater his ability to direct actors his ability to create a story out of sound and just the sound of a voice or the sound effects and music, you could tell that he was going to do something special whenever he got behind the screen, behind the camera. Yeah, yeah. You you mentioned the deep focus, which is something that a lot of, we you know, we don't talk nearly enough about. I, you, you talk about the sound and that him coming from radio. But I think the deep focus too, that comes from him being in plays, being on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, the fun thing about Toland is, uh, in reading about him, is he just got, he loved latching onto new directors because they were just open to new ideas. And Citizen, like, you know, Citizen Kane was like candy for, for him. And, you know, Orson yeah. Welles is like, you know, putty, you know, ready to be molded, that kind of thing. And the deep focus, what it does is, you know, usually, again, in movies comparatively, if you want to, you know, focus on one thing in the frame. You have to do like a rack focus. Like not everything can be in focus. Something is going to be blurred. And so if you want to go, you know, have Jimmy Stewart and, you know, in the middle of Congress and, you know, he grabs papers or whatever, you have to zoom in on the papers. You have to like have the, the, the camera focus on, on the eyes of like the, the, the members of the, you know, Congress sitting out there. You, you have to rack focus to them, but with deep focus, 
everything is there. And so there's nothing to guide your eye besides the acting and where they go and, and the, the triangular kind of mm -hmm. formation that Tolan and Wells are able to formulate your eyes. And that's very play like, because you, you, you have to focus on actors and things that are happening upstage and downstage and all those things. And it's just, again, it's, you know, it's just bringing everything and making an experience out of it instead of it just being one thing or the other. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah. But, you know, him just trying to incorporate everything that he knows and make an immersive experience. And that's again, but you know, maybe another thing with Citizen Kane is we take so many of these things for granted because so many people have copied every single, you know, new rule that he broke, you know, every innovation, like people have taken that and just used it over and over. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like in stagecoach, they showed the, the, the roof of the stagecoach that they're on. It's not like he invented new things, but again, I think it's incorporating the visual storytelling in with that stuff that really makes it work. And the uniqueness of, of how it looks compared to other movies that are more studio bound. It, it, the movie even looks different. It sounds different. It looks different. It just feels different than anything that had been out to that point. And it, it, that's just something that we take for granted because it's just been filtered and diluted mm -hmm. over, over decades and decades. Yeah. This movie could have been just deadly dull if, no, yeah. so, if other filmmakers had made it because it would have felt too stagey. And I mean, the fact that he, he understood that you can create tension on the stage, you can create tension in stationary sets, you don't always have to be moving from scene to scene in place to place. You could set, sit down, have a... Have a character like Thompson, who you never actually see in the movie, and all he's doing is interviewing people, and they could just have this conversation, and you're just entranced by it, but you're, it's not just because of the words that they're saying or the performances that they're giving. It's because of what Wells and Toland are doing to keep our interest in what the scene is about and how the scene plays out. And I mean, this, this movie really, you know, it's, it's, it's essentially, it's a faux biopic is the most amazing thing about it is that this is, this is, I mean, it's not a direct biopic from Hearst, but I mean, it's also, <laughs> it's also more believably accurate of how somebody like Hearst could would exist compared to something like Bohemian Rhapsody, which is about <laughs> an actual person, but doesn't necessarily feel like it has regular human behavior in it. <laughs> yeah, that's funny that you bring that up. I never, you know, I love talking about these new things and have it be in a faux biopic. I think that's great. You know, the liberty that it, liberties that it takes and the embellishments that it does. And yeah, I mean, wow, that's, that's funny to think of because it's, it's really no different if, if you do take it as a Hearst, because even Wells will deny that. If, if you do take it as a, a William Randolph Hearst kind of biopic, it, it fudges a lot of the details mm -hmm. <laughs> that kind of make it kind of an impression of them. That's, that's interesting. That's funny. Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, there are other great biopics and other great movies about actual people like Amadeus, like Lawrence of Arabia. They're just great movies, 
but they don't get everything right. They 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 embellish with they embellish ideas, they embellish facts, but what they get right is the sweep of the story. And that's what that's ultimately what Wells gets right when he, when you're talking <coughs> about Citizen Kane. And it's that's something that isn't as it's not as easy as you would think it would be when you're focusing on a particular personality or a or just one character throughout the le- through the lens of others. Yeah. And I think Pauline Kael, she even mentioned the movie as being kind of a, a shallow masterpiece, which I can understand. It's it's mm-hmm. not that deep. Like like it, like I mentioned, it's the screenplay is there and it works, but it's not particularly deep it's not groundbreaking and stories have been told before obviously the the rosebud things about childhood innocence loss and that kind of thing and how not to be a dick to people and Mm -hmm. you know you you can make something of yourself but i think a lot of people that kind of push back against the movie too it's it's what you bring to the movie it's it's do you side with with charlie do you push back against them i just think you know the the rosebud thing yeah it's a twist but like when it does that the I'm gonna say it, I'm gonna say it backwards, but the Raiders of the Lost Ark esque shot of like it pans through his yeah. whole basement, even though Raiders obviously took was inspired by this movie. Mm-hmm. You see like the statues, you see the typewriters, you see his newspapers. It's all of these things that made Charlie who he what that made yeah. him. But he just zero focuses on Rosebud. It, it was Rosebud something that he you know thought about constantly, or is that just the last you know dying uh, you know brain? you know, zap that comes out of his brain, you know, that kind of thing is, is it Rosebud? And yeah, I think that it goes back to, cause that was the last time you see him happy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think, and, and again, going to the child thing, talking about the writing, he's a child. He never really broke. He wants to make people happy, but he doesn't know how to, he knows how to take, but he doesn't know how to give. Mm-hmm. And so when he's wrecking Susan's like, is that, that's her room. It's yeah. like, it's a yeah. little girl's room with all the dolls and everything. And he's, he's having a tantrum. He's, he's having a child, childlike tantrum in a child's room. And then he realized that people are watching him and he's made such a ruckus and he walks and there's the, the famous image of him walking past all the many different images of him and the different versions, yeah. which again, ties that into all the interviews and things like that. And to me, that's heartbreaking because he realizes at that moment, way too late, decades too late, that he's done it all wrong. Yeah. You know, and maybe that's what Zero focuses on Rosa because that's the last time he, and that's even more heartbreaking because that was the last time he was happy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's just, just, I don't know, it's what you bring to it, but I think that the the narrative does have emotional stakes. It's not just a cold, it's not a mm-hmm. show-offy thing. There is a purpose to the storytelling. And if it wasn't for that, again, it's the Pulp Fiction stuff. It's like, if it wasn't for that scene at the end where Jules is talking to, to um, uh, Honey Bunny or, or whatever the Tim Ross name is, yeah. and he's basically saying, like, I'm trying hard to be the shepherd. If it wasn't for that mm-hmm. last scene in Pulp Fiction, the movie would be Teflon but yeah. it's about something. And that's what Citizen Kane is. Yeah, it's showy. Yeah, it's got all this stuff going on. It's fun to watch, but there is a story being told that you have to kind of apply yourself to. And I think mm-hmm. it, it's there if you're looking for it. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I this is, this is one of those films that really does, it benefits from, it, like I said, it benefits, I think, from all of the different things that Wells was. You know, whether it was the theater director, whether it was the producer of radio programs, whether it was the magician, 
and uh, yeah. that he was, who enjoyed illusions. It's like, this has as many illusions in it as Star Wars does. You know, it, it can, yeah. to a certain extent, it's almost as artificial as Star Wars is, but like you said, that emotional connection to the character, to the story, and to ultimately what that character lost in his pursuit of... It really is about as pure of an example of the corrupting influence of power as I think any movie has ever done, and it does it without like explicitly saying this is what this is about. Yeah, absolutely. I I just a couple of things that I push back against the movie is like I, I push back against people think like they don't like you talked about battle over citizen can. I think that's something that you should show people before you show them the movie. That's kind of backwards showing them the documentary on a movie mm -hmm. before, but it explains a lot of why it's such a rule breaking movie and why it matters. And so when you sit down, Oh, I get it. Like I get yeah. why all that stuff is so dangerous. It's that kind of thing. And so I push back when people are like, where's the innovation? Like it's so dull. And you know, it's what movie are you watching? You know, I, so I push back against that. And I push back against people thinking it has no meaning because the stuff is there. I, I don't think it's any less meaningful than the, again, the, the Bogart Bergman romance there. Yeah. It's just is presented in just the exact same kind of depth. I think it's, it, it's just hard. You just have to look for the meaning, but which the meaning is there. So mm. again, I push back against people that, that don't think it has any purpose. Yeah. Uh, it is, I know the the last, it held the number one slot in Sight and Sound poll for a long time. It was surplanned the, the most recent vote in 2012 by Vertigo, uh, which is... Oh, I thought it was Paddington 2 that... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that was Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, okay, that all right. Tomatoes. That's that's different than yeah, they... That, that's arguably more <laughs> prestigious, even though nobody understands Rotten Tomatoes at all. Yeah. But, um... <laughs> Yeah, that was that was so funny, which it doesn't, you know, and yeah, I don't, I mean, to be fair, I haven't seen the Paddington movie, so it's like, I, I in that respect, I don't really get it, but okay, yeah. sure, I, I'm sure it's a lovely film, but it took me a while to get to Babe as well, so, you know, I'll get there at some point, but um, no, I mean, Citizen, Citizen Kane is... You know, it's it's easy to see. It's one thing to say. One of the things that I love about this movie is that it's very easy to say, "Oh, this is a great movie." And it's like, "Well, why is it a great movie?" Well, it's like you we and we've talked about a lot of it. We've talked about the performances. We've talked about the visual storytelling. We've talked about the visual language of the movie, the way the story is told. We. And, I mean, we really haven't even delved into the performances. Joseph Cotton is terrific. William Allen, you did mention, has that wonderful monologue. Um, the Mor Agnes Moorhead, who plays yeah. Kane's mother, in that one scene is... you. It's heartbreaking because of the fact that you know sh what she's doing, and you know, even if you don't necessarily know what effect it's going to have on well because of the fact that that scene kind of happens because that scene comes after the newsreel you can sort of have an idea of it yeah and uh 
yeah, this this is it's just such a tremendous piece of filmmaking. I mean, it it can feel like it can feel like homework, but really isn't. Like, and I think that's that's one of the important things I think about watching movies from this era of Hollywood and earlier. I mean, I I think if you're if you're a fan of movies, uh, I I think you owe it to yourself to watch movies like Citizen Kane, to watch movies from eras like the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and even before in the silent era, because of the fact that you'll start to understand that, well, A, you'll start to understand that your favorite filmmakers are not necessarily doing anything new, but you'll also understand where their influences came from. And I, I think that's... I, I think that's tremendously valuable when it comes to connecting our favorite filmmakers with their favorite filmmakers. And being able to see those connections is is one of the things that's so great about being a film fan. Yeah, it's the it's the movie genealogy, right? You need to go and you need to find where your ancestors come from, so you don't sound like a raging idiot when you say, "Look how look how groundbreaking it is that that Captain America is picking up Thor's hammer." It's like, yeah. well, <laughs> that's great and all, but that's like, you know, how many decades of <laughs> film have we had since then? It's not, you know, you you've got to know your history. You've got to know and. There's nothing wrong with saying you like a movie that came out now versus that came out in the 40s, but you have to at least acknowledge that what you're watching has come from somewhere else and that could be done better or different, but it's not as new as maybe you think it is. And that's one of the big things about Citizen Kane is I do think it did a lot of things that were new and that's probably why I would, it's not my favorite movie, but I would call it, I would pick it as the greatest movie ever made because of the influence that it has. Yeah. But, you know, you can make the argument that a bunch of other movies are the greatest ever. I just think that that's yeah. the one that, especially the way that I came to it, that's just, it's been formative for me as a movie watcher. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, I, no film, no film exists in, in a bubble. Like, no film truly exists in a bubble. It's like everything, it's not to say that everything has been done before, but a lot of the ideas that we see now have been explored before in different ways. And I, yeah. I think that's, that's one of the things like you, you look at a movie, I mean, you know, you, you look at biopics and I mean, I, I brought them up. It's like, this is almost a faux biopic because of the fact that it's basically about one person's life and Wells treats it like that. And I mean, you, you, having that perspective can maybe give you an appreciation about why certain movies in that genre work and other yeah. movies don't. And yeah. if, if you're and one of the reasons that biopics cannot necessarily work so, is because of the fact is if they sand all the edges off and it's just nice and smooth and, all of that, but I mean, that's one of the things that's great about what Kane is here. He's not he he's not an anti-hero. It's like that's that's a word that gets misused a lot. He's he's the protagonist of a movie, but he's got a lot of flaws to him. 
and but he's no less compelling as a result of it. Yeah, it's the it's the Jake LaMotta and Raging Bull syndrome. Just because you don't like a person that that doesn't make him less compelling. Yeah. You know, he's Charlie is is human, and that's why I mentioned like the end when he just realizes that he's what he's lost and how much he's done wrong. It's like, oh man, you you feel for him because in that moment because he's just lost and he you know he should have he should have wigged onto that a long time ago that's the tragedy of him yeah uh we we could go on talking about citizen kane but (laughs) yes we could (laughs) but the fact is we have two other films and these two are i'm not gonna okay i'm not gonna say they're as important to wells's legacy as citizen kane are is i mean citizen Kane is a behemoth in the same way that uh, Star Wars is or Jaws is and a bunch of other, or The Godfather is, but... um, Avengers Infinity War. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I would go with Cherry, but, you know, (laughs) I would not go with Cherry. That was such an awful movie. No, I got it, Um, I got it. (laughs) But... uh, no, the, the next two films that we're covering, and uh, the first one is uh, Othello, which mm. you selected. Uh, we Or actually, I don't know, you, you brought up the idea of bring, doing one of his Shakespeare adaptations. And uh, I, I chose Othello because I've never actually seen, I'd never actually seen this one before. This one is, and if you do, if you are interested in seeing it, it is available on IMDb TV, so you can watch it there. Uh, It's also available on disc through the Criterion Collection, I believe. Yep, Um, that's how I watched it. And uh, this is a a pretty interesting adaptation. I'm I'm not as Shakespeare literate as I probably should be, so I'm not overly familiar with the play beyond what I've read about it and stuff like that. And watching Othello, this was first of all, this was this was probably one of the toughest shoots Wells ever had because oh, yeah. he basically had to start and stop several times because he kept running out of money. Hmm. It is a tremendous credit to that man that not only is this a wonderful film to watch a fascinating film to watch but that he was able to keep a consistent visual style throughout all of those breaks in filmmaking which took up about three years and Mm, it is absolute like five if you look on imdb like five cinematographers are credited (laughs) on this movie you would not know it looking at this movie and it, this is, and one of the things that I think focusing solely on Citizen Kane does an injustice to Wells and Alvarez. A, it kind of neglects the great work they did afterwards. B, he continued, like you said, I think, like you said, he continued to keep experimenting with each film. He kept continuing to push himself with each film. And you definitely see that with Othello. Yeah, it's, um, 
when we talked about it, I think the one that I wanted to do was Chimes at Midnight. That if I, I talked about Citizen Kane being the greatest movie ever made, but I think my favorite Wells movie is probably Chimes at Midnight. Mm-hmm. Just because, of, sorry, I threw away my notes here. The way that he combines, he makes Falstaff the character, but he combines like Henry the Fourth and Richard the Second and Henry the Fifth and the Merry Wives of Windsor. Like Falstaff was a character in those plays and he took all of the texts from those plays and he combined them into a movie just based around Falstaff. I mean, how ballsy is that as far as like Shakespeare adaptation watching the movie, it it's just as alive as Citizen Kane. I think Wells picks Chimes at Midnight as his, his favorite movie that he made, but, (sighs) but it does Chimes at Midnight, even though I think it's a better movie than Othello because he didn't, obviously he ran into production troubles, but not as many. But it shares a lot of the same qualities. It shares like the dubbed voices. It shares mm-hmm. like the, the 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 off kilter sound. Like some of the editing doesn't really match. So it shares a lot of that. I just think with Othello, you can you can if you know the history of it, you can see all the problems. Like oh yeah, obviously, except for the uh, cinematography which you mentioned. Like you can tell from the dubbing and from like some shots within scenes don't look like they're taking place in the same sets. Mm-hmm. And that's how it was because they were all over, you know, they were in Italy, they were in, uh, uh, you know, just all over the place, just different countries, because that's where he would shoot such a weird idea that he had to leave and the money that he made off of the third man, like he put into this movie. Um, There's, there's a story. I don't know what movie it was, but like he worked for another movie and he, part of his contract, he made them make them him a coat that had a fur <laughs> lining and they couldn't understand why he did that. But it's like, well, it's in your contract. And then later he used that jacket for Othello. Like you can see. Like, <laughs> and so he's just able to play the system to, yeah. to, to make it work. I just think um, it's just so funny, just the, the, the production history of it and any other filmmaker if it was any other filmmaker, I don't. Would you think we would have cut it as a much as much slack for all the production issues that you can see happening? No, no. I mean, if it, it only well, I feel like because of the fact that the legacy of what people know about Orson Welles, the fact they never truly had creative control again after Citizen Kane, you do kind of appreciate. You really have to appreciate the hustle he had to continue yeah. to try to get his vision on the screen. I mean, that's as true about Othello and Touch of Evil and The Trial as it is about Magnificent Ambersons, which is which is even more lauded because of the fact that it was so it was cut down and those cut scenes have never will never be seen again. Yeah. And so the legacy of Magnificent Ambersons is greater, and I'm not sure. It's a good film. It's a really good film from him. I don't know. I wouldn't necessarily put it up there with, like, Chimes of Midnight or Othello, though. Yeah, I think it's just the truncatedness of it. Like like I said at the, the top of this, it's like even <clears throat> subpar Wells is better than most directors at yeah. their best. So Magnificent Ambersons is a lot more elegant, but it's really short, and... Oh man, it's such a such a tragedy thinking of what it could have been. As amazing as it is, how amazing would it have been if yeah. we see we saw the 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 main you know the the, the main event, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. But to, you know, with Othello, even it, it's a problem when you're cutting down Shakespeare. You mentioned you're not as as uh, hip to Shakespeare as you should be. And growing up like a theater nerd and being in drama classes and acting out a lot of scenes from Shakespeare plays, and you have to read up on the play. I think it helps 
to know a little bit of Othello when you're walking into it, because then you can see what's been done. I think my main problem with it, other than the, um, the filmmaking, some of the, the, the sacrifices you had to make there was, I didn't really feel, the only reason I was involved is because I'd read the play before. I know what the play is. And so the way that Iago is manipulating Othello, I didn't feel it and I didn't know why he was manipulating. I didn't know how he was doing. I didn't feel it a lot, but I was still involved because I knew the play. But then it's to the power of Wells that when it finally gets down to it and there's, you know, the scene, especially when it's the showdown between Othello and, and Desdemona, you know, when um, it's in a hallway or something like that. And just from the, the start of maybe minute 50, yeah. there's a dramatic pull to the movie that really starts sucking you in, I think. And that's just because the drama is inherently there. And I think the last half of the movie is, is much stronger than the first half. Yeah, I would agree because with that. You're more attuned to it. What did you think of the um, the blackface in it? Is that something that is uh, an issue for you? So I so it was it was surprising because I mean I I figured it was obviously going to be blackface because of the fact that I mean you know that's that's often how Othello has been played over the years. Um, yeah, I took uh, Lawrence Fishburne in a 1995 film of. Uh, Othello before we actually got a black actor uh, playing yeah. playing Othello. It was it's surprising because of you know like you said the Voodoo Macbeth that was all black actors they did for the Mercury Theater it was something where it's like he he you know he he was challenging the system because of the fact that at that time you're still in the Jim Crow era of in yeah. this country that that type of production just wouldn't necessarily happen even in some place like New York. I one of the things I like about Othello, especially at the beginning, and I do agree with you that the dramatic heft of the movie really takes shape in the second half of the movie. But one of the things I appreciate about the beginning of the movie is the way that Wells sort of we obviously, I, a, I will say as far as like the black face, I don't think if it had just been a black actor playing Othello, I don't know that Wells would have had been able to get as many opportunities as he did to start and ch stop production. I think the fact that it was Wells playing the role is as important to him being able to finish it as anything. That being said, I actually really, I mean, obviously it's problematic, you know, to consider that, you know, in, even in 1950s, even somebody like Orson Welles would do blackface. But the thing that I appreciate about the film is he builds you into it. He, he gives us, he introduces Othello and Desmona, their love story, but you only really see Othello in wide shots near the beginning or in shadow you hear wells's you hear wells recite the dialogue but it's still very much he builds you up to the when you see him in the actual blackface and if it were color it would be harder to take to watch that the fact yeah. that it's in black and white is 
important. And I think one of the things I messaged you is I don't know that there's a filmmaker alive who ever used black and white better. Yeah. He, the way he uses the shadows, the way he uses the contrast of light and darkness, it's unparalleled. It really is. And he uses it to a smart degree here, especially when it comes to the blackface. So the thing that the thing that's kind of interesting about Wells, and we didn't really talk about this, but in a way, Wells is probably as Wells is the larger, you know, a lot of a lot of times you can look at filmmakers and movies and you can sort of see the filmmakers on the screen and you can sort of see you can if you understand the filmmakers personal life or something like that you can or their view philosophy you can kind of see why they would choose the pic the picture movies that they're making mel gibson is a good example he he very is somebody who very much has a martyr complex who you see it in passion of the christ and Apocalypto in Hacksaw Ridge, you see somebody driven by faith, and it's it's one and obviously Braveheart. Hmm. Wells, I think to a certain extent, he looks at not necessarily the racial discrimination, obviously, but I think the dilemma that Othello finds himself in with the betrayal that Iago is presenting and the jealousy that Yago is feeding to a certain extent I it it feels like Wells is sort of reflecting that in his difficulties to get productions off the ground and his product his difficulties in making getting his vision on onto the screen. So to to that extent, I mean Othello's almost as personal of a character for him as uh as um, Quinlan in Touch of Evil or Falstaff in Chimes at Midnight. But, I mean, there's certainly, you know, there's certainly themes of race that get presented in the movie. And I think, and I don't think having Wells in there diminishes those. I, I really don't, actually, which is kind of surprising. It's It offers a challenge to the audience to think of, well because we have a white person playing a black character, do the racial elements come through? And I think they do. And I think putting them in context of the fact that this is in the Jim Crow, this is during the time of Jim Crow. The civil rights movement is not quite started. And a few years later, we would see, you know, and a few years later, we would have Emmett Till lynched because of the fact that he allegedly, and we know is full of shit now, uh, whistled at a white woman, and the <clears throat> white woman lied about it. I mean, how is... There's not much difference to... There's, there's a lot you can compare with what Othello is going through here to what Emmett Till did. Now, I, I mean, obviously, Emmett Till was a real-life tragedy. This is, you know theatrical tragedy but i mean the 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 but people were lynched for the same thing even before othello so 
it's yeah. it's I I think it's it's it deserves more credit I think for the race just for the capturing the ideas of race than you would think for given the fact that a white person plays the character. Yeah, the other thing too is it's not he's just he gets some he gets some leeway because yeah, it's like you mentioned because of the nature of the production him being the star kind of it's easier because he doesn't have to make apologies. Yeah. To somebody for for he can just be there. But the other thing too is even, you know, you mentioned that it's it's was something that was done all the time. You know, Shakespeare plays women playing men and men playing women. It's just a natural um, you know, thing that they did and it's I don't I don't want to make excuses for it, but Wells doesn't play him as a caricature. He just plays it as as is. A, he just happens to to be black, you know, and he happens mm-hmm. to be a more. And you're right, it does make that an issue, but it's not I don't know, it is problematic, like you said, but if I don't want to get hung up on that one, on that. That's the only thing. Because it's it, it's either you do that or you don't have the movie at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I mean, the the important thing ultimately in this movie is does the dramatic, does the drama of what is being presented connect with? Does that sense, do we feel that sense of betrayal that Iago uh, is causing in Othello? Do we sense the fact that he's basically being manipulated by Iago? And do we feel for him? I mean, I I think you're right. The second half of the movie is better than the first half in that dramatic tension. Because if you're not as familiar with the play, familiar with the characters, it can be kind of hard because so much of the movie is... So much of the first part of the movie is Iago... Uh, talking to other people. It's not Yago necessarily talking to Othello. And so if you don't really know the play, that can kind of get lost. But ultimately, I, I think it does connect. Yeah, it's it's about Iago kind of laying the seeds. He's talking to Rodrigo. He's talking to Cassio. He's, he's planting the seeds of doubt in almost everybody, and he's playing everybody against each other, and he's using Desdemona as a pawn, and all that stuff that's... It takes an hour and a half to get through in the play. I mean, it, you know, it cut, cuts all that stuff out. I think that narrative-wise, it's where it suffers. Mm-hmm. But you you go back to... Yeah, I'd seen I'd seen this before. I think I saw it in a film class. But watching it again, you know, especially in in the, the uh, light of having this be an Orson Welles centric conversation, even from the first frames of the movie, you can tell this is an Orson Welles movie. There are yeah. deep shadows. It's like you talked about with the black and white. There's the the like almost chiaroscuro uh, imagery. It's and it's very stark. And I'm I was amazed at how black he could make the blacks. Of yeah. the you know the, the ball bearers like you couldn't see their faces and mm. and just it it creates this austere. We talked about uh, Bernard Herrmann's music um, creating that mood. Who are the the I'm gonna mess this up. And Angelo Francesco Lavagnino <laughs> and Alberto Barberis. I think they yeah. they were the I'm messing that up. But their score, you know the dum dum. You know it has mm-hmm. that 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 foreboding nature of it. And it you, you talked about personality of of directors too even though there's some truncatedness and you can tell that some of the film stock doesn't match because you're shooting under different circumstances and different yeah. situations. 
but there's this, the close-ups of faces, the, the use of shadow and the way that, that when Iago and Othello were talking, it like goes like in dungeons and like this, like recesses of the mind, like this, this like nightmare that gets more fully fleshed out in the trial. But like Othello, when they're having these conversations, you can tell that it's, it's the inner workings of Othello's mind and how he's framed in the back of shots and how he's like underneath, you know, awnings and stairs and in the background of shots and how he's uh, a very menacing character or when it's turned back on him that he's being menaced. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if that makes any sense. But again, the use of the blacks and the whites and the shadows and the way it plays off of faces and hides, you know, features of people. It's very, very striking and I think it's that focusing on, I, I think I wrote in my notes, like the one thing I wrote was every damn image in this thing. Like every image is like, whoa, how did he do that? Like, that is amazing. And like you said, you can't tell there's different cinematographers, but that's him working with Greg Tolan was the same way he worked with Breezy and Aldo and Fanto, the, the cinematographers that are credited on this. They, they're all of a piece because they're all in tune with what Wells is trying to get across. Mm -hmm. That striking imagery, it, it smoothed over a lot of the rougher edges for me yeah. because it was still, you could tell that's where the money went. Yeah. And just the way that the, the shots are staged and the way that they're composed is just gorgeous. And so, mm -hmm. wow. Again, I never checked the time on this movie just because I was so wowed by everything that was going on. Yeah. No. And you mentioned the scorn. I absolutely adore the scorn, this movie. Uh, it's, it it starts in, and it's funny because it's funny because in a way all three of these movies that we're talking about tonight and we'll get to the trial have openings opening sequences that basically you know set up everything that's going to happen afterwards and Othello begins with Othello and Desdemona's funeral. Which is not and, in the play. Which is, yeah. and, but it's a brilliant and striking way to start, especially with the Gregorian chant music at the mm -hmm. beginning. It just captures this sense of impending dread of what we're about to see that just, it, it, it haunts over everything in this film. Yeah. Yeah, and again, it's, I don't know if I don't know if gorgeous is the right word to describe it because right. it's the images are are beautiful but they're very I don't what's the word they're they're you know dark it's very threatening it's very um foreboding like all the shot it's it's a dark I don't want to say ugly either but it just the way that it it's it, stark too yeah. I'm I'm, yeah. I'm not I'm not finding the exact right word <laughs> I want here but stark like is I mentioned a good way. stark is yeah. a good way of putting it yeah but gorgeously composed, at least. And mm -hmm. again, the, the use of the, the, the colors and the, the, the black and white. You know, even mentioning, um, you know, the other side of the wind, which I, I thought was like, a, you know, a holy grail kind of thing. But the color, I didn't enjoy it as much because I think black and white is where his gifts are. Yeah. And for fake, it works because it's, it's a faux documentary, like a faux yeah. 1970s <laughs> documentary. So everything that they're doing is of a piece with it. But I just think that the black and white, there's so, you know, the kids these days that say that everything needs to be in color, but there's so much personality and so much mm -hmm. that can be said, so much volume to the imagery and the storytelling. And, and it's like we mentioned too, there's still a lot of visual storytelling going on with yeah. the, 
the dungeons and the especially at the end when Iago realizes that he's been manip not Iago Othello realizes he's been manipulated. It's the shot of Wells and it's just going around and around and around and it's just mm-hmm. disorienting. You know, it's, it's telling a story. Yeah, you, you know what I mean. And him behind the bars, it's like him trapped behind his stupidity and his his uh, stubbornness and the blindness and not being able to see what was going on until it was until mm-hmm. it was too late. Again, there's still a lot of visual storytelling going on in this. And again, it, it's like you said, it's not as wow in your face as Citizen Kane, but it's there's still enough going on that you're like, yeah, this is an Orson Welles movie. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh... You know, it's I, I would agree. I think Chimes of Midnight is probably a better film. I mean, it's certainly as an adaptation, as 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 a challenging adaptation of uh Shakespeare from Wells. I I think yeah. it's it's easy to see a Chimes of Midnight is definitely a better film. I, right. I think but Othello I think is admirable considering the limitations that he had in filming it in the choice of him to play Othello himself in blackface. And I think the fact that he made it as rich a visual and sonic experience as he ever made uh, between yeah. the score and the cinematography. It's, it's just one of those things where it's like, don't stop your Orson Welles watching at Citizen Kane and Touch of Evil, which are, or Magnus and Amberson. It's like, dig deeper into his work, and you will see that this man challenged audiences and challenged himself for the entire rest of his life. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, too, with this movie is I don't think, I, maybe the last thing I want to mention, obviously, I, I think the movie's great. I think it's a, just an experience. I think even though it's fascinating to watch as a curio and the, the struggles that he went through, and it's kind of a miracle that the movie is as good as it is mm-hmm. with all the troubles that they face, but yeah. I, I still enjoyed it. I, it's, it makes a stamp. And I, I don't think Wells gets enough credit as an adapter of Shakespeare as much as, say, Branagh or Olivier yeah. does. I think... Wells and Kurosawa, to an extent, are like second-tier Shakespeare mm-hmm. adapters, even though they're just as strong, if not stronger, than Branagh or Olivier. You have Kurosawa with Throne of Blood doing Macbeth, speaking of Orson Welles. You have Ron being King Lear, uh, mm-hmm. The Bad Sleep Well, which I like a lot, being Hamlet. Um, but then you also have Chimes at Midnight. You have uh, Wells did Macbeth, which I haven't seen. Um, yet even though i will but he's he brings a personality and a life to shakespeare that's just as important as all these Mm -hmm. other more famous um kind of caretakers of shakespeare on film i think yeah yeah and uh that with with that being said i don't really have a whole lot else for myself to say about othello uh like i said it's on imdb tv uh which you can watch through prime and it's 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 well worth watching. Uh, you you'll have to watch it with ads, so there are some kind of awkward ad breaks in in the movie, but it's still it's still definitely worth checking out. Um, that brings us to our final choice, which was my personal choice, which I think I think Touch of Evil is probably my favorite Orson Welles film, but not far behind it is his adaptation of Franz Kafka's The Trial from 1962. Mm-hmm. Stars Anthony Perkins, uh, and it tells the 
classic story of Joseph K., who is a man who is accused of a crime he does not know what he's accused of. He's never told what he's accused of. And he basically spends uh, two hours uh, trying to suss out the mystery of it. And eventually the... Eventually, the uh, system it 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 does him in, and this is this is actually a movie that a uh, friend of mine uh, turned me on to, and uh, I I have it through a uh, two pack, a dollar <laughs> two pack DVDs from Walmart, which is uh, how how I got it, and. Uh, I, I really hope Criterion gets their hands on this thing. I it is <laughs> it, I really do because this movie is such a it it's such a brilliant adaptation and such a brilliant piece of filmmaking. I mean, as as gorgeous as 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 stark and as beautiful as the black and white is in Othello and Citizen Kane. The trial is one of those thing is one of those movies that I think is on par with both of those in this respect. Yeah, it's um, you know, we talked about Citizen Kane being the only movie that he was able to, you know, make bring to the screen exactly how I think this one probably comes in second. Yeah. I know it was uh Alexander Salk kind, which was I always laugh when I see that name just because I'm a big uh, Superman <laughs> right. Superman 1978 <laughs> fan and and how they screwed over Richard Donner has always been a big form of contention with me. Yeah. Um but it was it was funny seeing that kind of, oh how compromised is this going to be? But like you know, Salk kind, I think he approached Wells and said I want you to adapt something for us. Here's a list of things that you we can do and they're all in the public domain. Um which again very Salk kind when Wells picked the trial, the trial was actually not in public domain from what I understand. So they actually had to, to fight for the rights to be able to film, to film it even while Wells is writing the screenplay. But, you know, it has, with Othello, you can see a lot of the, uh, the compromises that are made, but I think he still does a good job. There are a lot of crowd scenes that are very tight and claustrophobic, which again is the point of, the, of Othello. But the way that they have people walking back and forth, it makes it feel like there's a lot more people there than there probably are. But with the trial, you know, when Joseph K is walking through his workspace and there's just the mass, the, the, the giant room of all the workers that and yeah. you can see again with the deep focus, you can see everything. And again, just him walking past all the workers, there are shades of uh, Lang's Metropolis. There are shades of, uh, you know, I think Tati kind of ripped that off later for, uh, not ripped off, but kind of uh, repurposed it for playtime, uh, the apartment with, uh, you know, Billy Wilder's apartment has those shots in it. So it's very akin to that. But, like, the, the how, how what's the word I'm looking for? Just how massive that set is and how deep it goes. You're like, whoa, this is a giant budget movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? And when he goes to the court and it's like the, what, the, the you know, the Shakespeare uh, in the round, the theater, and how it's just vertical, you know, and, and it's, all the crowds and it's like, wow, this movie looks like it cost a fortune when they, you know, and, and when they go to the opera later and it, it looks like it's not compromised at all. It looks like a big giant scaled movie. Mm -hmm. um, the thing that I really like, and this is my first time watching it. I, I, again, it's one of those movies, Orson Welles, like his images are so ingrained in my brain that I think I've seen movies, even though I haven't. Yeah. I know that the magic that it worked on me 
I, I don't think I'd had that experience before. But what's funny about the movie is it's very, they, they say it's like dream logic. So it's very off kilter. It's very like um, surrealistic, you know, for lack of a better word, it's very, uh, you know, Kafka-esque. Right. And so it's a movie that when you vibe with what's it do, what it's doing, like it's supposed mm-hmm. to disconcert you. Like, why are there people in rooms and where are they coming from? Or didn't he just say that was his landlady's room, but then why are the guys coming out of it? Why does it look like a closet? Yeah. You know, all this stuff <laughs> like it, it. And after a while, it's like, it, oh, it's, it's like a nightmare. Like as, as any movie that I've seen, this comes closest to understanding and kind of translating what it's like to be in a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, just because of the way it's done. And once you, like I said, what I liked about it, I like that it's very surrealistic. And then it's a movie that once I get that and I get what it's trying to do, it's going to be fun to go back and watch it again and pick out the different details mm-hmm. or different scenes of what they were trying to do here, what they were trying to do there, how that ties into the theme. I just think it's, when you watch it for the first time, because it's not like anything you've, you've probably seen, no. it can either be the worst thing you've seen or one of the best things that you've seen. I just think if you let it work its realistic magic on you, then it, it's going to work better for you as an experience. But do you agree with that? I, I absolutely agree with that. And, you know, I mean, obviously, you, I, it's, you can obviously see how somebody like David Lynch could be inspired by this. Even somebody yeah. like Kubrick, when you talk about The Shining and the dream logic in the Overlook Hotel, yep. like you can see that there might be inspiration there. I mean, I'm very curious how many times Steven Sober re-watched this movie before he directed Kafka with yeah. Jeremy Irons or Alex Proyas with Dark City and yeah. or even knowing for Proyas. I mean, it's it's... It's fascinating. I mean, Lem Dobbs is a common screenwriter in both Kafka and uh, Dark City. But um, I, you know, this this really, this movie hinges as much on the performance by Anthony Perkins as it does the visual language of Orson Welles. Yeah. And I... I almost want to say this might be a better performance out of Perkins than Psycho. That's a tall order, but I Well, he's he's definitely it. in the movie. He's in the movie a lot more. Well, yeah. He's the center of everything. So yeah, I, I would agree with you. It's a very they use some of the Norman Batesishness mm-hmm. of, of him to to kind of is he guilty and what is he guilty of and like you're yeah. just, you know, no, and, and this is this, his performance in this is just a it's a masterclass in anxiety on film. Mm. And you just you follow him through this nightmare scenario. I mean it's 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 a classic Hitchcockian premise. It's like yeah. the, the man who doesn't know what he's accused of. It's it's essentially a it's a twisted version of North by Northwest. Where it's like Cary Grant does in that Roger Thornhill in that movie doesn't know what he's accused of for a long... He doesn't really understand why he's in this scenario for a long time. And it's the same with Joseph Kay in this movie, where he doesn't... But except he truly doesn't understand because nobody ever explains it to him. And you have... There's a fascinating first scene between him and John Moreau in this movie, 
And it's just so wonderfully played. And I, I love what you said about, you know, the officers coming out of who, you know, his landlady's, you know, apartment. But it's like, wait a minute, why are they in there? And like <laughs> just the way the scenes, the dialogue is so circular in each of these scenes. Like there's one story going on with the visuals. There's another story going on with the images. And it's with the dialogue. And you just, it's, it is really, it, it is really a semac nightmare. You can see why somebody like Lynch could, would, would be inspired by this movie. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, the, the, the novel, which I haven't read, I've, I've studied it in, in school, like, but I don't remember actually reading it. Maybe it's one of those things that I said I read just so I could get a passing grade on it. But, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of nooks and crannies to the, to the, Kafka book but once you understand I, I think the basic point of the, the book is that it's like you're under attack from like not from murderers or thieves but you're under attack and you're kind of oppressed by a bureaucratic society like mm -hmm. it's not just being like violence it, it's the the dullness of it it's the apathy that you're kind of being oppressed by it's yeah. it's that that can kill you once you understand I think that that's the basic gist of what Kafka is trying to get across then it's always okay well what does this scene have to do how does this scene tie in with that theme how does right. that scene that that theme um we mentioned that there's a the dream logic of this realistic stuff and again you start it, it makes sense once he goes into that like empty warehouse and there's a the the, the, the door keeper the guard and she's she's doing laundry and she opens the doors and there's the giant trial just in there <laughs> you know or when he leaves um what's his name uh titarelli's like uh wood shack or whatever like when he leaves he opens a door and he's right back to where his workspace was where all the other accused are there it's like it has again it's like that nightmare it's it's with him coming under attack it's not only hitchcock but it also Kafka wrote this as kind of a fantasy, but then later with like Nazi Germany and with uh, mm -hmm. the McCarthy uh, hearings uh, against communism, that stuff, a lot of the images in this movie reminded me whole, you know, whole hog of all of that. Like, yeah. oh, wow, that's obviously a, a mention of that. And it, it's the way that Joseph feels in the movie, it's got to be what a lot of these, the, the people being accused of being communists, what they felt like, mm -hmm. you know, and the Germans are rounding up the, 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 the Jewish people and, you know, they don't know what they're being accused of. They're just basically being rounded up just because of who they are. Like yeah. there's that, the movie definitely, and the book definitely gets across that sense of I'm being, I'm being persecuted for nothing just yeah. because I'm part of a group. And that's what's horrifying about it. And that's why every scene and every image, again, with the shadows, again, with the walking in these cavernous industrial basements, uh, you know, it gives that sense of uh, a nightmarish quality to it. And again, it lasts through the whole movie. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's just, it's unlike anything that I've seen Wells do before, but again, it's visually just striking. Mm. The, I, I have to mention the opening. This is, I, I absolutely love the way Wells opens this. It's a it's essentially a parable. It's written it was written by Kafka. It's from one of his yeah. stories. And it's about a man Before the Law, right? Is that the, the name law. of it? Yeah. Yeah. And it's just it's done in pinwheel pin screen animation by and I'm gonna butcher this name, Alexandra <laughs> Alexiev, I think. 
Yeah, uh, I think that's the how I, I pronounce it. it. Yeah, we'll we'll go ahead and go with that. But <laughs> um, it's just such a beautiful opening, and really, it sets the stage for everything to come because of the fact that it's like you wonder, you know, it's like it it and it goes to this idea that the person the person at the beginning of the in in this this story of uh, being outside the law he is he, he's not allowed in and years go by and uh he stays outside the doors and at the end of his life he asks why isn't anybody gone in to see the law and the guard says because everyone has their own door this was to be yours and now i can close it and it really sets up the idea that Joseph K is essentially stuck in a situation, like you said. I mean, it's it's basically it it basically is about a the oppression of a bureaucracy, and that's basically what this opening sets up. And it's such a beautiful scene. It's such a wonderful scene to look at. And uh, it's it always has it's always affected me watching it because of the fact that I love not only do I love the look of that scene I love the way that scene plays into the rest of the film and what Joseph K is going through and it's like and I I love just the imagination of the way these sets add. To, no doubt had to be constructed the way they're interconnected the way they're the the way that one set moves into another moves into another and then yeah. you you have him at at the end it's it's the saddest thing because for the first time really for the one of the first times in the movie he's out in broad daylight he's got all of the world around him and it's too late like yeah. his that's he he's he's at the point where it's like all of that space around him is not going to help him because yeah. and it's not gonna help him feel free from what he's been going through this entire movie. Yeah, and it's it, I think in the end it just it just wears him down. Like yeah. the scene at the end when they're finally ready to kill him and they, they can't bring themselves to do it and he <laughs> close himself up with the dynamite yeah. you know it's it's he's just and he's just laughing hysterically and cackling it's just he's had enough like it's in the book it takes court takes place over a year like they say you're under arrest but you're free to go and do whatever you want to do and keep doing your it's like well why is he not like i guess he's in a prison of his own making yeah. he's not necessarily like behind bars but he's it's a it's a hell that he's living through or at least or dreaming about uh but the other thing that um we we need to mention is this movie i think is really really funny like yeah. <laughs> it takes you a while. Like the scene where it's uh, what what's her name? It's uh, Lenny, the the Romy Schneider character. When she takes Perkins, like when he goes to see Wells, and I want to talk about Wells's performance in this yeah. <laughs> in a bit. But the the scene, especially when he's got uh, uh, Lenny, and they're just on top of like old law books, and they're having like a romance scene, and they're just chatting, mm -hmm. and 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 he's wearing this oversized coat, and there's a part where he tries, and they keep shifting, and they he moves, and like the coat rush brushes over her face and covers her face and she keeps talking even though she tries to move it out of the way and it's it's just i just started laughing really hard and 
and the the scene that obviously before that is when they go to see uh, Wells as the uh, the magistrate. What does he call the advocate? The advocate. Yeah. And how they introduce him. I loved how they hit his face. Like you could hear his voice. And like, oh, there's Orson Welles. <laughs> and his voice is so recognizable. But like they hide his face. And then they put that hot towel over him. And like, mm-hmm. it's just, there's steam. And you can see his mouth moving. And he opened his mouth. And it's so exaggerated. And I was just laughing. And then when he sits up, because he's like with the the uh, personification of sloth, I guess. Like he never yeah. wants to get out of that bed. When he pulls the mask, the towel off his face, and his hair and his face are still steaming as and he's talking, and he's the the thing that doesn't get mentioned a lot that we I don't think we mentioned yet with Wells is that he's a rap scallion. You know, he's he's yeah. got like a sense of humor. He's like very, you know, he's he he'll dig and like he's he's got that sense of playfulness that you know it's there in Citizen Kane. It's not really there on Othello because it doesn't call for it, but him as the advocate in this really yeah. funny stuff. I just I, I liked all of that. I liked. You know, even the part with Moreau at the beginning, even the the acting is experimental because they're sitting on that bed and for no reason she puts her hand on on Perkins's face <laughs> as he keeps talking and then she just moves it down. It's like it's like what is going on? Like mm-hmm. nothing makes sense. But again, I don't. I think that's the point. It's like nothing's supposed to make sense in this. I think one of the things that's really kind of interesting and it occurred to me as we've been going through this conversation is that, you know, we talked about Citizen Kane. We talked about the fact that Charles Foster Kane is is not a particularly... He, he's not a particularly sympathetic character because he basically makes his own bed. It's like once, yeah. he, once he's addicted to power, he's addicted to power, and it's not going to be until the end of his life that they really realize is just what he lost in that pursuit. And we're watching him from the outside looking in yeah. instead of sympathizing, empathizing, yeah. I think as Wells got older, as Wells moves from film to film to film, his character, his lead characters get more and more sympathetic. You think about Falstaff in Chimes <clears throat> at Midnight. You think about Joseph Kane in The Trial. You think about Really, Quinlan, even even though he's a villain in Touch of Evil, he's really the more sympathetic character between he and Heston's Vargas. Yep. And yep. you look at Othello, and you look at you look at all of these characters, and you you really kind of see that. And it's pro- it again. It goes to this idea that I think Wells. Wells was, in a way, very autobiographical in just about any movie he made. And I think as he got older, he kind of saw... He he kind of felt more and more sympathy towards some of these characters, towards, like, a young man like him after Citizen Kane could not have done Chimes at Midnight. He could have possibly made the trial, but I don't know that... It, it wouldn't have been the same thing, and chances are he probably would have played Joseph K. And that would yeah, have been yeah. a very different thing than what we get from Perkins in this movie. Right. And it's, it's just one of those things where it's like, again, you basically have to get past this and Kane to see just how rich of a career Wells had. And just, and I love what you said about him being a scallion. If we'd if we've been talking about F for fake, you definitely see that in his tone, in his form, in his tone in that movie. 
uh, because of the fact that so much of it is about Oaks's, so much of it <coughs> is about playfulness of cinematic form, and that's one of the things that is great about that about Orson Welles is that he was always he's respectful to the to the art form, but he's not reverent towards it. He always was finding ways to push filmmaking forward and to do so in a way that challenged the art form more than just left it at a form of stasis. Yeah. Um, you know, the most indelible image of Wells is that reveal of him as Harry Lyme. It's just, it shows his face and he's got like the, you know, he's got the cheeks and he, he just gives that, that's that sly smile that lets mm. you know that he's up to no good, but that you'll like him. Like he's a likable, again, charismatic. He's just a very playful persona. Um, but I, I think what you're talking about with like sympathetic characters, um, he, he takes a back seat in this one. I think he wanted, uh, Jackie Gleason to play the advocate, but then he bowed out, mm -hmm. so he played it himself. But when you're talking about sympathetic characters, it's not just Wells, the characters that he plays, because uh, Perkins, it does have that Hitchcock wrong man. You sympathize with him because he's being accused. You don't know why. Like, yeah. that's automatically you gravitate towards him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, you know, it was in seeing him comparing and contrasting Perkins in this to Perkins in Psycho, like you do see some of the same actors' ticks yeah. in both characters, and you see some, and you still see some of that same personality. It's just in Psycho, it's done to disarm you to the revelation that he's a killer, and in this one, it's to empathize with him because of this impossible situation he's found himself in. Yeah, I mean, you still sympathize with him in Psycho before you realize that, you know, the twist at the end, because you, yeah. when, you, when you think it's his mom that's actually around doing these things and he's trying to sink uh, Marion's car in the swamp, you sympathize with him. It's terrifying. Mm -hmm. You want him to be able to get, because it's not him. Like, he didn't murder her as far as we know. And so yeah. it, it does, I think there's a, it's it's the casting. It's it's brilliant casting having Perkins in there because it it plays off of that that Norman Batesish like is a Norman Batesishness of his personality. Even I think it mentioned somewhere. I'm trying to be respectful here, but you know, Perkins kept his sexuality under wraps during his whole career. A lot of people thought he was homosexual, and he kind of plays to that in Psycho as Norman Bates. It kind of plays to that. Like he's, you know, he plays. Uh, obviously, he's got Moreau and he's got. Uh, Schneider and uh, uh, all the you know all the characters that he deals with, but then there's a scene where he's talking to Block and they're they're really close to each other and it's almost like or even the scene where he's in the closet with those with the officers and they're being whipped with their shirts off. There's a, <laughs> like a, a homoeroticism that that makes you uncomfortable because you don't know in what context it's being shown. But it, later when he's talking to Block, they're getting really close and you're like, is he going to seduce Block now? Is Block seducing him? And then you have that really funny scene where, where Lenny comes in and they go and they look, they, they're all standing there and you can tell that Block is attracted to Lenny and you can tell that <laughs> Joseph is attracted to Lenny. You can tell that she knows that they're both attracted to her. And then you have this scene where she goes upstairs and they, she shows them the bed and they're all like, this is the bed. And they're like, hmm. You know, they're all just staring at it. like, <laughs> And you're like, oh, is there a threesome coming now? Like, you're open your mind like to anything. It's just, there's a sexuality in the movie that's, that's you know, it's at play. 
And, and again, in my notes, looking over my notes here, for the first page and a half that I have, it's all, why is this not making any sense? Why, how did that connect? Like, why does the woman carry that trunk all the way across yep. the field? And then all of a sudden she carries it back. And like, where was she taking it in the first place? It's mm-hmm. just so... <laughs> And I think it was at that point, I'm like, okay, I think I know it. it's just, this is a, this is a dream. Nothing. When you're dreaming, nothing makes sense. Yeah. And if anything, I think the movie gets that across perfectly. Like no other movie I've seen before. It gets the, the nightmare feel of what it's like to be in that, the dream sleep or whatever that you're having and the weirdness that's going on. Mm-hmm. But again, there's a threat that you're kind of a nerve by, but then there's the funny stuff and the weird stuff that comes in. It's just, it's a, again, I come back to this word. It's very stark. It's very austere, but it's got a sense of humor to it. But with the beyond before the law, I mean, there's how, how do you, you know, there is that tie in with how do you recognize what the law is? How do you, how are you able to see it? How does it work? Like you, as long as, and I think the point of the story at the end is like, yeah, now that you realize that this door is for you and that it's not going to make sense. That was the point of it. I'm going to close mm-hmm. the door. I don't know. That's, that's kind of what I crossed, got across when you were talking about it, but like I said, it's a movie that I, I like a lot watching it and it creates a mood, but it's one that I'm going to love returning to just to see how yeah. each scene plays toward the theme of that bureaucratic uh, mm-hmm. system hammering you down. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you haven't like trial, the trial is hard to come by. The trial is very hard to come by. That's, that's part of the reason why I would love to see Criterion get their hands mm-hmm. on it, do a full restoration of, the images and just let this film take its place as one of Wells probably I would say one of Wells best films. I I think it's up there and I, and it's, it's, if you're a fan of Kubrick, if you're a fan of David Lynch, if you're a fan of, if, if you're a fan of Soberg's Kafka, which you know, had some issues, but it's still pretty entertaining. I mean, I I think you can very easily you can very easily appreciate even if you're a fan of like the Truman Show. It's like really mm. the Truman Show is very Kafkaesque in the way in its scenario as well. And there's anything that basically has a character questioning their reality. I mean, Brazil is another one that would that yeah, fit yeah. very well with this. Ooh, um, yeah. Especially some of the scenes later, where you know all of the running around and all of that, it's it's completely you you have to imagine Gilliam was probably a fan of that. Oh yeah, it's and the bureaucracy movie. and and everything that's beating that the, the Jonathan Price character down. That's yeah. wow, that that's a good connection, Brian. <laughs> but uh, I I really do. If if you take a chance to watch. The trial. Take a chance to watch Othello. I mean, I one of the things that's great about Wells, and we sort of touched on it early on when we were talking about his career in general before we started talking about the the films that we talked about, is the fact that he is somebody who always, if not just he wasn't just pushing film forward. I think to a certain extent he was also pushing audiences forward too he was challenging audiences perceptions on how film could make us feel i think how film was made obviously 
but also how stories could be told on film. Mm. And I mean, that's that's one of those things that like you look at the, you know, you look at Touch of Evil with that great tracking shot at the beginning. You look at the way that scenes like with Vargas and Quinlan play out at that really completely improbable ending on the pier in in uh, Touch of Evil. And then you look at something like Leave Shanghai, which plays into film noir, but is much more, but is also very romantic and uh, emotional. And then you look at movies like Othello, you look at movies like Chimes at Midnight, you look at movies like The Trial, where he's telling stories in, he's telling stories that you might be familiar with, especially when it comes to Shakespeare, but yeah. he's doing it in a way that's different. And doing it yeah. in a way that challenges you. And I, I think that's that's one of the endearing great qualities of Wells as a filmmaker. Yeah, the thing that I the word that kept coming to mind as you were just talking was memorable. Every Arson Wells movie, even if it's compromised like Othello, every movie that I've seen of his is memorable. There mm -hmm. are images that'll never leave me. Um, I'm very thankful that you're able to bring the trial into my life. It's, you know, there are images that I'm never going to forget. And it's something that I, like I said, I'm going to return to you. Um, and I think Criterion, they might, they must have that because they, you know, they did Othello, they did Chimes at Midnight, they've done all of his stuff. So there's gotta be something in the works. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. But again, I think, and I mentioned this a couple of times, it's just even subpar Orson Welles is still more fun and, and more entertaining and more innovative and more creative than most people at their peak. Mm -hmm. And the worst thing, I don't think I've seen a movie that's this way of his yet, but the worst thing you could say about an Orson Welles movie is that it's unmemorable, is that it doesn't have a personality. Because like you said, he is trying to push the limits of what we accept um, and like with Citizen Kane, people pushed back against that. And it was hard for even the deep focus there. People's eyes weren't used to adjusting or focusing on everything, mm -hmm. but now it's become commonplace. You know, in, in an episode of Nostalgia Cast, uh, we talked about Queen uh, or a Flash Gordon episode. The thing that makes Queen such a, a immortal band is they don't sound like they come from the 80s. They sound like they were from the future. They're modern. They're mm. trying to push boundaries. They were trying to be different. So I don't, I don't think the music from Queen dates because it's just as innovative today as it was back then. Mm. And there's a sound because they were trying. And when you watch an Orson Welles movie, I, I really, I feel for people that, that watch an Orson Welles movie and don't feel anything as far as images go and as far as what's trying to be pushed and, yeah. Even just watching without any dialogue, mm -hmm. you know, would be memorable. And so that's, again, that's the main thing that I love about Orson Welles. We need a, we need more showmen, even if, mm -hmm. even if that comes across as a negative. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you were, you were talking about even subpar, even uh, subpar average Orson Welles is memorable. I mean, I, you know, I, we haven't even brought up the sort of incomplete version of Don Quixote that was mm, recreated. Yeah. I mean, even that, you can see that that would have been fascinating if he had been able to complete it. Like, that would have been an interesting version of that material. And, you know, the, the man never, 
that's that's the thing that's so great about Wells is that he always had interesting ideas on the types of stories that he was telling. And it doesn't matter what it was, but he had something interesting to say. And we were were fortunate whenever we have a filmmaker like that come around. Well, let me ask you a final, maybe a final question here is, do you think, because again, I'm kind of on the fence, do you think we would have gotten better films out of him? Maybe that's not the right. If he'd had the freedom to do whatever he wanted, like if he hadn't been kind of screwed over by the system, is that a Wells that you'd prefer? Or do you prefer the Wells that we have where he's got... Even his failures are fascinating. What what Wells? Because it's heartbreaking knowing yeah. that he never got the same break. It's heartbreaking because you can see everything that he was capable of. But I don't know. I don't know if I would trade that for the Wells that got everything he wanted. I know, and I mean that's that's one of those what ifs that you can't help but think about. That I don't know if there's a real answer to it. Like because, like you said, I mean, you know. Maybe we will have got maybe we could have gotten better wells than we did. Maybe we could have gotten these big elaborate productions and him basically been being able to do what he wants with Othello or the trial or just anything that he wanted to do or Don Quixote. But yeah. at the same time, I, I think you're right. I think it is a it's a tough question because of the fact that it's like what we got out of him, as frustrating as it must have been for him to go through his career like this, in a way, that's part of what makes these films endure as much as they do. Because you can see the blood, sweat, and tears that went into them. Oh, yeah. Yep. But yeah, it's a tough question. I, I don't I would have been curious to see. I mean, you we've sort of gotten an idea of it with the with Walter Murch's re recreation of Wells's memo in Touch of Evil. We've kind of gotten that sort of quote unquote definitive version of it. But I, God, it breaks my heart that we don't have those missing scenes of Magnificent Ambersons to see what that was like. You know yes. what would. What would Othello been like if he had been able to do a traditional production of that? Like, what would have... Now, I mean, you know, there are other films, though, like Chimes of Midnight. It's like, he... I mean, he almost... It's another one where he almost... Like, sort of like the trial, he almost sort of got his vision on to the screen. So it's like... I, I think a lot of it had to do with who he was able to get in league with in those later years, like the Saul kinds, like, uh, you know, like how he got Chimes of Midnight made. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, yeah, it's it's one of those great what-ifs. It's one of those, you know, it's, it's not an easy... There are some what-ifs that are very easy to answer. That, that I think, is one of the harder ones. Yeah, maybe if we could just do a, a glimpse into the, into the alternate universe and then decide if you want to live in that time or just, just trade it back and keep exactly. what we've got. Maybe, maybe <laughs> if we could do that. <laughs> that would be something. Yeah. 
But uh, DW, thank you very much for joining me on the Sonic Cinema podcast. It was great to it's great to be a guest on your podcast. I'm glad we were able to get together on my podcast to discuss a filmmaker who as as much as you know, I Citizen Kane was one of the first films I talked about when it comes to sort of established classics. The idea of movies that sort of have the reputation of greatness, whether they're necessarily seen or not. And, you know, I, I think I do think to a certain extent that that greatness of Kane has sort of devalued what happened afterwards, partially because of, you know, what we were talking about, the fact he never had the control he had on Kane again. And that's a shame because of the fact that I think as we've seen, been able to illustrate with Othello in the trial, there's so much more going on with Wells' career than just his first movie. And it's it's a rich career to watch. Yeah. Well, again, (laughs) I I think I mentioned this when you guessed it, is I was nervous having you on. It was like we don't, like in the the age of Twitter, it's like, listening to Sonic Cinema and, and reading your your blog and all and all your reviews, I'm like, I'm going to have this guy on? Like, how are we going <laughs> to be able to... But I think having Rad on was a good kind of meeting in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, what was great about our conversation there is, you know, you're, like we talked about before, you're easy to talk to, you're easy to chat with. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, because I think we're kind of got the same, even though we might disagree on some, I don't think we've had any big disagreements, but, you know, we're kind of at the same mindset of, it's let's have a conversation. Yeah. And... The opposite of having you on, because I didn't want to screw it up, but like all like week, as soon as we we set the date for this, I'm like, oh man, I'm going to be able to talk about Orson Welles. I could talk about Orson <laughs> Welles as long as I can talk about superhero movies or, you know, anything, you know, mm-hmm. it'll be so fun being able to talk about other stuff. So thank you for, thank you for having this idea and just being able to talk about one of my favorite filmmakers. It's man, such a good time. Yeah. I appreciate it. No. And I mean, the, the pleasure is all mine, and I, I love that, you know, it's especially because it's, it's difficult, like, like you said, with, with, with Rad, it was, it was, it's difficult to, when you first have this idea of, oh, I'm going to have this person on to talk about a movie. And it's like, especially if you've never talked to that person before outside of Twitter or something like that, yeah. that's intimidating. That that can be really intimidating, and uh, you know, I I certainly felt that way when I first started to interview people, and then, I mean, I've been very fortunate to have not just not just friends who've been on the podcast, but filmmakers as well. Who yeah, I just I just connect with them. Like I just I'm on the same wavelength with them, even if we don't agree on the particular film that we're talking about. I can talk to them. Because we we're essentially coming from film from the same place, which is just genuine love for the medium and love of being able to talk about films that interest us. And I mean, yeah. Wells is one of those things. I you know, it's like you you talked about essentially putting Citizen Kane on the bomb because it felt like homework, and it's like I can see Wells feeling like homework, but I hope that after by the time this they get to the end of this, people get to the end of this podcast that they realize that there's so much more to Wells than just feeling like homework. And it's the type of homework where it's like, 
oh, I've got to get to the next lesson as soon as possible. Yeah, you, you kind of feel like if if you do think of Wells as homework, it's the kind of homework where you're like, I'm actually enjoying this. Like, yeah. I, I feel like I'm getting away with something. Like, <laughs> the, if the teacher found out I was having this much fun, they'd be like, nope, let's pull it and let's read the Scarlet Letter four more times. It's like, <laughs> you know, you're... Uh, it, it's the intimidation factor of, and we didn't really talk about it, but being called the greatest movie ever made, especially being on Twitter, that feels like an attack on your on your opinions. It's yeah. like, don't tell me it's the greatest movie. I'll decide what the greatest movie is. <laughs> but it, you know, like they talk about, um, I think Leon Thomas in a Renegade Cut on YouTube, he talks about like whiplash. And the only way to really approach Citizen Kane is to say, it's the greatest movie ever made. How can you say that about a movie? It depends on the technique. It depends on what's being done. Yeah. It depends on the innovations that they're doing. And yeah, movies are subjective, but how is this changing the game? And I think that's where a film can be respectfully and rightfully called the greatest because of the rules that it breaks and mm -hmm. the rules that it makes. And, you know, Wells was that rule breaker and man, you're missing out if, if all you know him from is Unicron and Transformers, the movie. That's all I'm yeah. saying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so. it's it's one of those things where it's like that's that's one of those scenarios where it's like if you if you like if if you appreciate Orson Welles in that movie, like sort of like what we were talking about, because you 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 brought that you know I brought the idea of you know bring following a movie and different people involved in a movie and going backwards and forwards in their their filmography. And, you know, the, the example I used was The Crow, lean me to Tarkovsky, lean me through <clears throat> Proyas, lean me through Brandon Lee's work. And, I mean, it's like you, you would love to see somebody, a younger uh, movie watcher who loves Transformers the movie, loves... Uh, loves Orson Welles in that and go, what else did Orson Welles do? And yeah. it's like, where else can I hear that voice? Because that voice is one of the most iconic in movie history. And it'd be great to see him them work through the some of the movies we've talked about and to go, oh, wow, there's so much more to this filmmaker than I ever expected. Yeah, feel free to like Transformers the movie as long as you use it as a gateway yeah. <laughs> to, to learning more. Just don't let that be the, I absolutely agree with that. But yes, thank you very much for joining me, DW. I appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. I'd like to thank DW for joining me on the Sonic Cinema podcast tonight to discuss Orson Welles. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation and I hope you guys go out and uh, check out Othello and the Trial. Uh, Orson Welles is so much more than Justice and Kane, and uh, those are two of the better examples of his undeniable talent as a storyteller, as a performer, and just as a filmmaker in general. And I, I can re recommend them more. Um, that's it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. Uh, thank you again to DW for joining me. Uh, check out his podcast, Nostalgia Cast. It's a lot of fun. Uh, like I said, we uh, we covered Rad in my appearance on it, uh, and we definitely want to uh, talk again. And it's it's been a lot of fun to get to know him on Twitter. Definitely check him out on Twitter. He has a lot of great things to say. But uh, thank you very much for joining me on this episode. 
Uh, check out the Sonic Cinema Patreon at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. Subscribe to the podcast at Apple and Google Podcasts or Spotify or the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. And check me out on Twitch. Uh, like I said the earlier, this the streams are going to be less consistent with me going back to work, but hopefully we'll at least try to get one in a week. And then uh, I thank you very much for joining me and uh, continue to follow my written work at www.sonic-cinema.com. Thank <laughs> you.